Good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad all of you are here this morning. Those of you who are watching us live stream, we're so glad you're able to join us this morning as you meet with us this morning as we are live in this place. We want to encourage you, if you don't have a church family or church home, we want to encourage you to come out and visit with us, hang out with us, fellowship with us, do life with us. We want to encourage you to do that. For those of you who are guests, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here at Scotts Hill Baptist Church, and it's been a pleasure for me to do so for all of these years. Um, people who are here know a lot of things about me, and one of the things they know about me is, is I don't ever pick out any of my clothes, okay? I never do. My wife buys my clothes. She tells me what to wear. She lays it out. She irons it, lays it out, and every morning I get up. I'm so blessed that I have a wife that does that for me. She does that not only because she loves me, because she would be, but mostly because she would be terribly embarrassed to see me if I picked out my own. And uh, I just really, I'm not colorblind, I just can't match. Several weeks ago, she bought me some new shoes. They were black shoes with kind of a white thing under it. So many of you have come up to me and said, what are those shoes? One person came up to me and said, those are Kohans? I said, I don't know Kohan. A couple of minutes later, another, oh, those Kohans? Who is this Kohan? I don't know Kohan. And one man said, where did you buy those? I said, you have to ask my wife. I have no idea who Kohan is or where she buys my clothes. So I don't know. Well, I'm just telling you today, I've got these new shoes on, and these are Kohans, and I picked them out. <laughs> yes. I got to win. So if any of you want to know what kind of shoes I have, they're Kohans. I bought them at Rack Room on sale. So, and I'm not, I, I am, listen, I wish I had something to do with Kohan, but I don't. I don't even know where he lives. So anyway, this is just who I am. And um, every week when I come up here, you can thank my wife for the way I look. If, if you see me in town on my own, that's probably what I have done. And you will recognize that. We're so glad that you're here. We're continuing in a study that we have called Faithful. We're looking at Paul's first letter to a group of Christians in Thessalonica. They were believers and they were called Thessalonians because they live in Thessalonica. And as we're going to look through this series, we're going to unpack this book as five chapters and we just want to break it down and take our time and look through it. This morning, as every one of you is sitting here, I just want to remind you of something that's true that sometimes we forget. Every one of us is building a testimony. Every one of us is building a legacy. Every one of you is known for something and you will be known for something, and every one of you will leave a living testimony or a legacy when you're gone. We're all known for something. It's true of every organization. It's true of every business. It's true of every church. Every church has its identity, and every church is known for something. Scotts Hill Baptist Church is known in our community for something. And churches are always known for different things. Some churches are known for their great unity. Some churches are known for their disunity. Some churches are known for their sound biblical doctrine. Some churches are known for their unsound doctrine. Some churches are known because they have the ability to attract crowds. Some churches are known because they have the ability to build a rich community. Some churches are known because of their creativity some churches are known for their orthodoxy. Some churches are known because they're large, some because they're small. Some churches are known because they're friendly, they're unfriendly. Some churches are known because they are under-contextualized in their community, and they're so distant from the community. 
Some churches are over-contextualized and there's no difference between them and the community. And some churches know clearly what their vision and their purpose is. And some churches change their vision and their purpose based upon the latest church growth conference. And so I could go on and on and on and on. Churches are known for different things. And Scotts Hill is known for a number of things. But the real questions we need to ask are really two questions. Number one, what kind of church does Jesus want us to be? We're his bride. He's the groom. Who does he want us to be? What does he want us to look like as a body of Christ in our community? What does Jesus want from us as his bride? And then a second question is this. Do we have a biblical picture of such a church? Does the Bible provide you and me with a clear picture of what we should look like as a body of Christ? Well, I got great news for you this morning because we see that in 1 Thessalonians. In verses 2 through verse 10, the Apostle Paul is describing the young Christians in Thessalonica, and he points out three models of a model church. Three marks of a model church. And this is very important because these three things are to be the marks of every church. And these are the things that we are to recognize. And as we recognize these truths, then we can please the heart of Jesus. We can be the kind of people that God wants us to be in the community that he has placed us in. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to look at one mark. We're only going to look at one of them. And while we're going to read verses 2 through 10 to get the full picture, we are going to settle in in verses 4 and 5 this morning because we really need to understand these marks and how significant they are. And this morning, we need to look at just the one so we can bask in it and we can savor it and we can come to understand what God wants us to be. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your devices, whatever it is that you have, just want to call you to open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read all the way to verse 10. You just follow along with me, and then we'll have a prayer, and then we'll break down verses 4 and 5. Here's how Paul begins. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that you have been chosen, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers, delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we unpack these verses, we ask, Father, that you would give us clarity today 
to understand what you want to speak to us. Father, that you would give us conviction today that we can understand what you want to do in us. And Father, we pray that you would give us comfort today so we can know how to trust you in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the marks of a model church. The Apostle Paul is writing to this young group of believers. He had only been with them maybe three or four months. But he was so impressed by what happened in them. When he's in Corinth, Timothy writes to him, and he tells him of all the wonderful things that's happening. And so the Apostle Paul from Corinth is writing to, young Tim, um, to these young Christians in Thessalonica, and he begins by talking about these three marks. Here's the first mark of a model church. The model church is made up of people who are chosen. They're made up of people who are chosen. The Apostle Paul begins with what some of us might think is some strange language. He puts it this way. He says, for we know, he's confident of this, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, a lot of times what we do is we think of church in the fact of this. We choose a church, and we choose a church that we want to be members of. We think about us choosing. And while we may choose a church and choose a church we want to be a member of, God is the one who chooses people to be part of his church. God is the one who, who is at the beginning and the end of salvation. Now, when Paul says this word chosen, this is a word that is, comes to a doctrine that has created a lot of divisiveness in our churches today and has even created a lot of confusion. As a matter of fact, this thing called the doctrine of election has created a lot of struggle for hundreds of years in the church. And this doctrine of election makes some people uneasy. They don't want to talk about it. But some people who want to talk about it find themselves in camps that seem to be opposite from one another. The doctrine of election is, an, is a doctrine that's all through the pages of Scripture. And yet it is a doctrine that many people struggle with because we don't know it fully. And we can never know it fully because it is a mysterious thing that we won't know fully until we're in the presence of Jesus. But this doctrine of election has basically worked itself out into two different camps. And these camps tend to be opposite of one another. There are some who see the doctrine of election through the lens of the sovereignty of God. And on one hand, it's based on God's sovereign choice. There's another group that sees the doctrine of election through the lens of the free will of man. And over here, it's man's choice dealing with salvation. So on one hand, it's God's sovereign choice and salvation. On the other hand, it's man's willingness to choose God. And so they look at it from different lens. One is a God-centered doctrine. One has a man-centeredness to it. Now, those have come to oppose each other, and they've come to this argument. It's the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And we have seen that argument for centuries. Someone asked C.H. Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest preachers of the modern era. They asked C.H. Spurgeon, they said, You, sir, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? He said this, I never reconcile friends. 
I never reconcile friends. Because to understand this whole thing of being chosen, we need to understand the depths of that. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to ask some questions. Where he begins, he says that you are chosen by God. What does that mean? We need to ask the question, when does that happen? Why does that happen? How did that play out in my life? And how does that change my life? What is my response to that? So here's what I want to do. I want to just take those questions and I'm going to answer them as we go through the pages of Scripture to help us to understand this thing that we're chosen in God. Because if that's a key point of being a model church, we need to understand what that means. So no matter where you find yourself, no matter where you find yourself in this whole argument, one thing we have to all agree on is salvation does not happen apart from God's sovereign grace. Amen? Salvation does not happen apart from the grace of a sovereign God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. At least any man should boast. It is God's sovereign grace in our life that changes us and make us his. So let's begin with the first question. When does that happen? If God chooses me, when does God do that act? According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. From eternity past, every single person who is a child of God, every single person who has admitted their sin, has surrendered to Jesus Christ, has trusted him as Lord, from eternity past, God has known you and God has chosen you before you were one day old. Some people say, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't God choose me based upon my actions? No, before you had your first thought, before you had your first deed, before you did anything worthy or unworthy, in eternity past, God had in the plan you. That's incredible that he thought of you from eternity past. That it's not based upon what you have done. It's not based upon what you have thought. It's based upon God sovereign in his grace choosing you. Every single child of God was in the heart of the Father from eternity past. Every one of you. Now here's the amazing thing. Some people will say, yeah, but God just looks through the corridor of time. He sees all those who would choose him, then he chooses them. Well, two problems with that. Number one, it's not sovereignty. That's based upon response. That's not based upon God's sovereign choice. The second thing is the text doesn't allow it for that. And here's why. The whole point of this is salvation is, is at the initiative of God, not you. It is God's initiative that causes this to become a reality in his life. If salvation is initiated by me, then salvation can be ended by the initiation of of me. But because salvation is initiated by God from eternity past, Paul can write to the Philippians and say, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's the confidence that we have. So this whole thing of election and choosing begins in eternity past by the Father. But here's the second question we have to ask. 
Why does this happen? Why is it that God would do such a thing? Here's the incredible answer to that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, again, For we know, we have confidence, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why did he do it? Because he's loved you. Get this. Before you were born, God loved you. Before you've done anything, God loved you. And the motivation of his choosing you wasn't based upon what you did or who you were or what you accomplished. Many people will say, well, God loves me because I love him. No, the opposite is true. God loves you and brings you into a relationship with him. And the motivation for all of this is his incredible love. His love is what caused him to choose us when we were unworthy, even before we were born. God has loved us with an everlasting love. Again, Paul writes in Ephesians, in love he predestined us for the adoptions of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What is it in love? The motivation for God is that he loves you. Every single child of God has been loved from eternity past. Jeremiah says, I have, you have loved me with an everlasting love. And not only is it from eternity past, it is for eternity future. John writes this in 1 John, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is incredible. It's not that you have loved God. It's God loves you. And God has never not loved you as his child. He has always loved you. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to go on a cross for you. He loved you so much that it says he was willing to crush him for you. He loved you so much that he has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has adopted you as his sons and daughters. He has placed his Holy Spirit in you. The motivation for your salvation is God's love for you. And there's never been a time when he has not felt that for you. I love what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love. The word manner means out of this world. Behold, what kind of love. It's out of this world kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. If you're a child of God here this morning... There is no reason, there is no reason ever to question God's love for you. Because there's never been a time he has not loved you. And there's never a time he will not love you. Even in your failures, even in your disappointments, even in your doubts, even in your struggles, even in all of those things, he has chosen you from eternity past, has loved you and the motivation for that. It's his incredible love even today. So we see when. We see why he has chosen us. But here's the third question, and this is a huge one. How is it, how is this accomplished in a person's life? How does God's choosing me from eternity past, his motivation being loving for me for eternity past and eternity future, how is that fleshed out with where I am? How do all those things become who I am today? Well, it's, it's very simple. The Apostle Paul gives us in verse 5. 
He says, for I know, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Here's why. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. How do I know that you're chosen? Here's what he says. Because our gospel came to you not only in word. The truth is, the gospel always comes first by word. And the gospel is always the basis for salvation. Because it is the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And all good news is predicated by bad news, right? In order for something to be really good, I need to know what's really bad. Here's the gospel. Every single one of us in this room, without exception, are sinners. Every one of us have failed to meet the glory of God. Every single one of us as sinners are separated from a holy God. Every one of us as sinners, there's a penalty for that. It's called death. And we deserve death and separation. But God, who loved us so much from eternity past, sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross that he might take the penalty of our sin that he might become the propitiation. That means he satisfies the wrath of God once and for all. So that we who receive Jesus by faith, we who surrender our lives to him by faith, are no longer under the wrath of God, but we are under his grace. And now, at that point, we have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's it. But here's the interesting thing. Many times... Those of us who are believers, you know what I'm saying. How many times had you gone to church before you were saved that you heard the gospel? How many times had you heard some preacher say it, or you've heard it on the radio, and you've listened to the gospel, and you've heard it many, many times? Maybe you've been at a church service where people around you were getting saved, but it phased you not at all. You listened to it, you walked out, you thought, wow, that's great, wonderful truth. You know, he did a great job on that delivery. You know, he was funny, he was inspiring, every bit of that, but your life didn't change. Nothing changed about you, nothing. You went on your life, you kept doing the same thing. You thought, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. I don't need a savior. I don't need all this religion stuff. I'm just gonna keep being good and being who I am. And you do. And your life doesn't change. You keep on living in your sin. But one day you go to that church. Same building. You sit in the same seat. You sing the same songs. You hear the same message of the gospel. But something happens. All of a sudden, you see the seriousness of sin. And all of a sudden, it's captured your attention, and you're thinking, well, well, wait a minute, I've never seen it like this before. Then all of a sudden, you see that Jesus really is who he says he is. And your heart is strangely warmed, and you recognize that there are consequences if I reject Jesus, that I'm going to spend an eternity separated from God. Then all of a sudden, that which was never an urgency becomes an urgency for you. And you find yourself with this deep desire. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you know that you must surrender your life to Christ. And you do. And you are gloriously saved. I remember my own life. I remember how I was living. 
Man, I was living with alcohol. I was using drugs. I was selling drugs. I've been shot. I've been involved in all kinds of legal activity. And I knew my life was on the edge, but you know what? I didn't care. I was having fun. I was living for Phil. And people shared the gospel with me. Some people I thought were very strange. I thought they were fanatics, you know. This one guy would write in my notebook every day at school, loving Jesus is more fun than playing football. Loving Jesus is more fun than riding motorcycles. Loving Jesus is more fun. He'd write this list, and I'd just say, yeah, yeah, Jesus free. Get out of my notebook. Then one night, a friend of mine, Danny LeBlanc, invited me to church. I didn't care to go to church. It was a Thursday night. He said, why don't you come to church tonight? Why don't you hang out with me over there? I said, well, who goes to church on a Thursday night? He said, people who don't have a date for Friday night. And they're good-looking girls there, and they're singing in the choir. And I knew that there was a good-looking girl that I'd been having my eyes on. So I went to that church service. I sat down in that pew, and I looked back there, and there was Cindy Babcock. And I thought, I'm going to ask her out at the end of this thing. And as I sat down there and I heard the gospel, then all of a sudden, for the first time, wow, there's my sin. There's the serious nature of the consequences. All of a sudden, this heaviness was on me. And I knew, I knew that if I left that building and I died that night, I would go to hell. Nobody had to convince me. And I'm hanging on to the pew. I'm squeezing it as tightly as I can. And I think of the best person I know. I said, if Jerry Harris goes down there and talks to that preacher, God, I believe this is real. 15 seconds, there went Jerry Harris. And as I stood there, absolute brokenness, I went down there. I gave my life to Christ, and I've never been the same. Never. What happened? Here's what happened. There are many times I heard the word, but when the word of God came in power with the Holy Spirit, then there was explosive life in me. The word power there means dynamite. It's our word for dynamite. The Holy Spirit. And here's what happened. Here's how God applies his choosing us. It was in that moment that the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin. He convicted me of the righteousness of Jesus. He convicted me of eternity that was waiting for me. He is the one that opened the eyes of my heart. He's the one that enabled me to see differently. And all those times I'd heard, I walked away. But at that moment, it was so compelling because the Holy Spirit brought the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ into my life. And there, the Holy Spirit applied what the Father planned from eternity past and what Jesus procured on the cross. And it all came together as God fulfilled his purpose in me. That's how it works. There's some of you who have heard the gospel over and over and over, and you have walked out, and it has done nothing to you. And there's some of you here this morning that you are hearing the gospel, and you know what I'm talking about because something is happening inside of you, and that is God demonstrating his calling and his love right now. So here's the other question. What is our part? What is our part? Here's where the beauty of the sovereignty of God and the free agency of man come together. 
Because the doctrine of election does not remove the free agency of man. The doctrine of election helps us to understand that God is the one who does the calling. God is the one who does the drawing. God is the one who does the convicting. And I am the one who responds by faith. He's the one who's drawn me to this point. The Holy Spirit has brought me to the place where I can see. And what do I do? I surrender. I just simply say I quit fighting. God has done such a work in my heart and my mind, I cannot refute it. And I know who I am now and what God is and who Jesus is. And at that moment, I surrender everything to him. And here's the beauty of both of these. The doctrine of election is called an antinomy, where it seems to be two contradicting statements, but they're, they're equally valid when standing by themselves, but they seem to contradict one another together. And when I come to faith in Christ, all of it comes together for the glory of God. Let me give you a picture. It's like a person. It's like this person who, who is warmed by the Spirit of God and they know who they are. Then all of a sudden, they're about to walk under this archway into the kingdom of heaven. And over the archway, it says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that person says, oh, I've got to surrender. I know who I am. And that person by faith, makes a human choice to walk through that arch. And they think, I've chosen Jesus. But then they look back on the other side of the arch. It says, chosen from the foundations of the world. And each is true. And there, the Holy Spirit applies what the Father planned from eternity past. Motivated by his love for us carried out by Jesus on the cross. And we're never the same. Why is that so important? Because every child of God is chosen by God. Listen, I'm going to tell you, there's so much more to the doctrine of election that gets people into the weeds. And it gets us so confused. And we'll never know all those answers this side of heaven. I have my own questions. But I love what this one man said, and he brought it all together. He said, the doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped, nor a banner to be waved, but a bastion of encouragement for God's amazing love and grace that he has lavished upon us. It's not a bomb to blow everybody up, even though it is earth-shaking, <laughs> It's not a banner to be waved as though it's issue of pride. It is a bastion of encouragement that changes everything about me. Why is it so important that we see ourselves as a chosen people? Here's why. I want to give you three things that when you and I grasp the understanding of God's sovereign love and grace... These are the things that it draws out in me. Number one, humility. Humility. When I understand that God chose me and I had nothing to bring to him, there was nothing that I had that would have attracted him except for his sovereign grace and love for me, it makes me humble because I don't deserve it and I could never deserve it. I walk in humility. 
And I will never be able to stand before anyone and tell them, let me tell you what I've done to get saved. No. It's always, let me tell you what God has done in me and how he changed me forever. It's humility. But listen, not only is it humility between me and the Father, but it's humility between me and other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when we walk in humility because of God's sovereign grace in our life, you know what we don't do? We don't compare our salvation to other believers. There's no elitism in the life of the church. There's no one better Christian than another Christian because the reality is this. We're all sinners and we are all miserable failures. But it's only by His grace that you and I are brothers and sisters. So we walk with humility with one another and we walk in that amazing grace and we celebrate God's grace in each other's lives. There's no pride. There's no competition. There's no trying to one-up each other in the body of Christ. None of us deserves to be in the family of God. It's just His grace. Here's the big third part of that. Not only is there humility between me and God and me and you, but listen carefully, there's humility between the church and the culture. Because of God's amazing grace, we have no right to go out there and point our fingers at people and condemn them for their lifestyles. Because we once were there, we did the same thing they did, and we had no better power to overcome it than they do. The humility that should flow from the body of Christ to the culture is this. You need Jesus. It's not an issue of judgment. It's not an issue of condemnation. The person who says, I can't believe what they say. Oh yeah, you said that before Christ and more. I can't believe what they do. Oh yeah, you did worse things than that before Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world but to save the world. And if the Savior of the world didn't come to condemn, who do we think we are as the body of Christ to condemn people who cannot help the way they live because they're apart from Christ? So I should love them. I should pray for them. People say the doctrine of election keeps people from evangelism. Wrong. The doctrine of election should drive me to want to tell everybody about God's incredible love and His grace in our lives. That's humility. And when you and I live as chosen people, we will live as humble people before God, before one another, and before our community. And you know what they will know? They will know we are different because we love them. That's who we are to be. People of humility. What else does this doctrine do? Not only does it drive me to humility, but it drives me to gratitude. It drives me to worship. It drives me to adore the one who gave everything for me. I mean, the one who loved me from eternity past, the one who knew me from eternity past, the one who made that a reality in my life right now, today. Wow, Father, I worship you. Lord Jesus, you have my adoration and my praise, and we should be some of the most grateful people in our community. Because not one of us deserves to be called a son of God, a daughter of God. But we should worship in adoration. Here's the third thing. Assurance. 
Because salvation is not initiated by humanity. It's initiated by divinity. The entire trinity is involved in your salvation. That God has loved you from eternity past. Jesus loved you on the cross. The Holy Spirit loves you today. And you are absolutely secure in Him. You will never be perfect. You were not perfect before you were saved. You're not perfect now that you're saved, but you are perfectly secure because Jesus saved you. And we can walk in assurance. Listen, when we as a body of Christ really understand that God chose us, the overflow of that is humility. The overflow of that is gratitude and worship. The overflow of that is I can walk in the absolute confidence that even when I fail, he will never disown me. Even when I struggle, he will never not love me. And the God who has loved me from eternity past will love me into eternity future. And nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. If you're a child of God, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of God's own possession, that you would declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're going to close with a song this morning. And this song has all the remnants of this message in it. And if you're a child of God here this morning, it should drive you to worship because of what God has done for you. So believers, let this sink into your heart and your mind of all that God has done. And it elicits in you these three things. If you're not a believer here this morning, some of you may walk out of here and say, I don't understand a thing he said. Some of you might say, yeah, I understand that. And that sounds pretty good. Some of you are saying, wow, God's been dealing with me for a while. And today is your day. It's your time to surrender everything to him. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. As we sing Christians worship, if you're not a believer here this morning, would you take that time to just cry out to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins and that he would be the Lord of your life? And then at the end of the service, I want you to do something really bold. At the end of the service, when we're done, I'm going to be down here. I want you to come down and say, I surrendered my life to Jesus today. He's been dealing with my heart and it's time. I give him everything. Would you stand together? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that when we come across doctrines that are difficult, rather than running from them, may we seek to understand them. And Father, may we never be the same because of what you've done in us. That your mercy's on you every morning and we never get tired of your grace and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.